I wanted to begin just um, making you aware of something. You know, we have the privilege of being in a fellowship of churches, Harvest Bible Fellowship, uh, with over 100 churches across uh, the world, and many in, in Canada and North America. And one of the, the privileges of that is getting to celebrate with each other uh, what God is doing. We're seeing God do great things throughout the churches in Harvest, and, and God keeps allowing more churches to be planted. And so we, we get to rejoice with those who rejoice but one of the, the privileges and the responsibilities we have to being in a fellowship of churches where we have relationships with these other churches is that we, we also have to mourn when others mourn. And I just want to make you aware of something for the sake of prayer this morning. We're going to pray in a minute, but um, one of the pastors in the fellowship, um, um, John Tank and his wife Becky, they're a pastor of, he's the pastor of Harvest uh, Clear Lake in Iowa. Uh, this past week, their youngest son, 16 years old, took his own life. And uh, we, we just, I just... Um, I can't imagine what they're going through, and uh, just reminded of just the pain and sorrow of this life, and uh, I, just, I just wanted you to be aware so that we can be praying for him, for his family, for his church, even as they meet today. I can imagine life is, is very hard right now, and I just want to invite you to uh, bow with me as we go before the throne of grace together. Father, we, we, we do just that right now. Lord, we enter into your throne of grace. God, we do so because of your great grace. Father, you've given us the privilege of entering into your presence, of being extended fellowship with you, all because of our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we stand upon his righteousness. We stand because of what he accomplished on the cross. We stand because of his life, his death, his resurrection. And Father, we, we come pleading no righteousness of our own, only the righteousness of our Savior and our Lord. God, we thank you that we have access to you as a child has access to a father that we can enter into your presence, Lord, that you hear us, that you accept us, that you embrace us. And Lord, we have upon our hearts great burdens, Lord, and many in here know the pain and, and trials of this life, many in here even experiencing some this morning, Father. God, we specifically want to lift up to you our brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the Tank family, and Lord, trying to fathom, Lord, what they are going through and the pain they must be experiencing right now, the heartache, the loss, the confusion, Lord, we, we don't know all of the, the details and the circumstances or what would push somebody to take their own life, but Father, we pray for them right now in this moment that they might even supernaturally be experiencing your love, your comfort, your grace, your peace, your rest in what is such a time of upheaval and turmoil and chaos. Lord, we pray right now that the body of Christ would be surrounding them, would be bearing this burden with them, would be lifting this up to you, Lord, that you would delight in providing all that they need at this time. Lord, we, we so often in this life don't know why things happen, but we know the one who does and the one who we can turn to. And Lord, you are faithful, you are good, you are merciful, you are true. And God, we pray that you would be all those things and so much more for this family during this time of heartache. Lord, thank you that you hear us. Thank you, Lord, that we can turn to you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Lord, we, knowing your love right now, turn and ask that you would continue to move mightily in our time together, Lord, that you would allow us to hear from you in a powerful way this morning. Speak to our hearts, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's... Uh, kind of goes without saying with news like that, that sometimes um, this life is very uncertain, right? And sometimes this life doesn't go the way we planned. Sometimes this life is very painful. It's been said that there are only two things that are actually certain in this life, right? Death and taxes. For the most part, certainty in life doesn't exist. Maybe in some small ways it does. Maybe in some of the more superficial ways and areas of life, but when you think of the big picture, when you think of the circumstances of life, when you think of the context of life and the big things that go on in life, it really when we look at it, so much of it is uncertain, so much of it is out of our control, so much of it really is just feels like we're being blown around by the wind and we're at the whims and waves of our circumstances or other people. But where certainty does exist, or where at least we experience the illusion of certainty, just think for a moment about what that provides in our lives. 
Having certainty provides a sense of stability in this life. It provides for us a great confidence. It can provide a source of meaning, of purpose. It can provide a a helpful tool to reorient our lives and to help us with our priorities. It can create a sense of clarity in our lives, a sense of urgency in our lives. What if you knew this moment, the very day, the very hour, the very minute you would die? Would that change the way that you lived your life? Would that change the way you interact with the people in your life? Would that change the way you deal with the relationships in your life? Would that change the way you structure the priorities in your life? What if you knew for certain that you would have great wealth in this life that would not be stripped away? What if you knew for certain in this life that you would have perfect security? What if you knew for certain that your life would be untouched by danger? It would be untouched by instability, instability, excuse me, that it would be untouched by danger or disease or disaster? That would grant to you such comfort, it would grant to you such confidence, such stability, it would produce within you great purpose, a great sense of direction. Without certainty, so many people in this world live with great fear. They live with a sense of confusion, they live with a sense of hopelessness, oftentimes in debilitating despair or depression. Without certainty, so many people have no purpose, they have no meaning, they see no reason to go on living. What we desperately need in life is certainty. We are hardwired by God to long for certainty, to long for stability, to long for something to build our lives upon. We long for truth. We long to have confidence While you can know some things for certain, there is only one thing that ultimately matters for eternity. There is only one thing you must be certain about, and that is this, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one thing in this world upon which you must find certainty, in which you must find certainty. Everything else in this world will fade but Him. In Jesus Christ is found all hope, in Jesus Christ is found all purpose, is found all meaning, is found all life, and is found all joy. And yet we run around finding all of those things or trying to in so many other things, in so many other ways, when the very thing our heart longs for, though we know it or not, can only be found in Him. Peter wants to prove with great certainty who Jesus is, what he can provide, what he has accomplished. He wants the people who have gathered around him during this sermon, during this moment in history to hear these words. You can know for certain who Jesus Christ is and how he can radically alter and transform your very existence. You remember the context, Peter has stood up on Pentecost. An unbelievable event has just occurred. The Spirit of God has been unleashed upon the church. The 120 first believers are forming the first church of Jesus Christ, and God has poured out His Spirit, and the result, the manifest presence of God is seen in that these people are now speaking foreign languages that they have never before known. Everybody is hearing the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own language, and many of them are beginning to ask this question, what does this mean? What is the purpose of this? What is this trying to tell us? Is God doing something mighty here? Peter's answer is unequivocal. God is doing something mighty, and what he is doing is putting someone on display, the world-changing figure, Jesus Christ. He has highlighted as he begins to stand and preach to the the crowds, the thousands upon thousands who are questioning these events. He has preached to them already. We saw last week about Jesus' life and Jesus' death. But now he turns the corner to perhaps what we can say is the culmination of the work of Jesus Christ, his resurrection and his exaltation. And through these things, he is declaring that God has attested to us. He has accredited to us Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah, and he is the Lord God Almighty himself. He is God in flesh. 
I want to pick up reading verse 24. In fact, let's just back up and let's grab a hold of the context. Beginning in verse 23, look at what Peter says. We saw this last week. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, Peter first stands before the people and he declares this, that the resurrection declares that Jesus is the defeater of death. Now, it's unfortunate there's a bit of a a verse break between verses 23 and verses 24, but what we should see here is one thought flowing from one piece to the next piece to the next piece. And so we need to read verse 23 through verse 24 as if they're one kind of thought, one argument that's being presented. And what he's doing here is so critical. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews who have just crucified Jesus Christ. He's telling them that they had great responsibility in this while God was sovereign over the whole thing, while all of it was according to his predetermined plan and foreknowledge. He looks at them and says, but you are responsible And then he just turns the corner and he says this, that though you are responsible, God raised him up. And he's providing for them a sense of disparity between who God is and who they are. What they have done and what God is able to do. He's making sure they understand that there is a wide chasm, an insurmountable, humanly speaking, chasm between this God whom they say that they love, whom they say that they follow, and who they truly are. This is the case with all humanity. There exists between us and God a massive chasm. This really describes for us all of humanity that is guilty by association in putting to death Jesus Christ. And yet what we see is that God in his great love has planned this and he has purposed even in this amidst our sinfulness to save us through Jesus Christ. He's identified in such a profound way as the defeater of death. Did you notice in verse 24, he says, God raised him up, and he uses a significant word here. He says, loosing the pangs of death. That word that he uses for pangs is a common word both in biblical and and extra-biblical literature outside of the Bible to describe the birth pains that a woman goes through when she's in labor, labor. And so here Peter is is giving a picture, a metaphor to explain uh, the nature of death when it comes to Jesus Christ. In a sense, what he's saying is this, that the resurrection is no match for the power of Jesus Christ. God loosing him from the pangs of death. Again, this word, this idea of a woman being in labor gives the sense this, that the momentary pain resulted in the birth of something glorious. This pain, like the pain that a woman goes through in labor, is temporary and it points to something greater. It points to something more glorious. And that thing that it points to in this case is the resurrection. Now, I want to just make a quick note. What we see in Peter's preaching is absolutely remarkable. Peter really sets the bar for all preaching when it comes to the church, when it comes to preaching the gospel. He highlights the four key components of a gospel message, doesn't he? He talks about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. He talks about the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. But here's something so significant. He really, here we see this, he identifies what will become the climax of all apostolic preaching. The really focal point of the gospel preaching throughout the book of Acts is the resurrection. You'll notice that even in our text, he's given two verses to describe the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, but now he's going to give nine verses to defend and argue and promote the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's why I think this is so important, because oftentimes in our gospel presentations, the area we focus most on is the death of Jesus, isn't it? Now, I'm not in any way diminishing that. We have to focus on the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ means everything to us. It was there that God paid for our sins. Amen? Peter, excuse me, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, though, catch this. If the resurrection did not happen, then all of our preaching is in vain. None of it matters. We're above all people to be the most pitied. 
Why is that? Because listen, if the resurrection didn't happen, then that means this, that the death of Jesus really accomplished nothing. It means that Jesus was nothing more than a martyr. It means Jesus was nothing more than a good man, maybe a good teacher, but at best, really, or at worst, excuse me, he's a lunatic who is crazy and not worthy of being followed. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so pivotal. The death of Jesus, if I can give you an analogy, it's like this. The death of Jesus Christ is like paying for something at a store. You walk in, you make your payment, and what you receive back is a receipt, correct? That receipt is the declaration that what you have paid for has been paid in full. The resurrection is the receipt that God hands out to declare that the sins, what has been paid for by Jesus on the cross, has been accepted and he stamps upon that receipt, paid in full. Without this, we have absolutely nothing. So he begins to focus on the resurrection and he talks about the resurrection as if it was something that was inevitable because the power of God was way too great for the power of death. And don't miss the reason that Jesus rose right there, right? If you circle or underline things in your Bible, just note that word because. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Prior to Jesus, just consider this reality, death was inevitable for everyone. Prior to Jesus, death won. Death was victorious. Everybody lived in fear of death. It appeared prior to Jesus that death had the final word. Death was kind of like Goliath, who constantly stood before the people, even the people of God, mocking them, taunting them, provoking them, striking fear into their hearts, causing them to stand quivering in his presence. But there was one who would come and put death to death, would bury death in the grave. And like David, who slaughtered Goliath, great David would have an even greater son, Jesus Christ. And he would conquer someone much greater than Goliath, someone who struck more fear into the hearts of humankind. Death was the greatest weapon of the enemy, Satan. Death was always the weapon that Satan himself was wielding over God's people. Remember, death was a result of the fall. It's interesting to think of it like that. We're so used to death being a part of normal life, but God never intended death to be part of our existence, not not in that full and final sense. That's why when we are raised to life, we're given a new body that is imperishable and will never die because God is restoring us back to what he had originally intended us to experience. Obviously, in the sovereign plan of God, we see that sin entered into the world as a result, or excuse me, death as a result of sin. Satan, wielding this weapon over all of humanity, is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what the writer says. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself, speaking of Jesus now, likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh, he became a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the result of the fall. But here what we see this is it could not hold Jesus Christ in the grave. Death could no more hold Jesus than a woman in labor can hold her child inside of her body. That's the imagery here. It is utterly impossible. Now, as a result, the good news is, is we need not fear death. At the cross, Jesus Christ defeats death. As he rises from the grave, God stamps his approval upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, and he says, death, where is your sting? I love that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about death, and you know, death has been defeated, but one day, death will ultimately be destroyed. It will no longer be present in any form or any fashion. And while Satan used death to taunt humanity, to strike fear into humanity, to mock humanity, in 1 Corinthians 15, I love it because their tables have now turned. 
Listen to what Paul says. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And can you just hear this? Listen, God is mocking death here, right? He's mocking, where's your sting, death? Where's your victory now? Who's triumphant now? Where's your power now? It is obliterated. It's been swallowed up. Someone greater has come and put death to death. Praise God. He goes on to say the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does the resurrection declare that Jesus is the defeater of death, it declares secondly that he is the provider of hope. Now to support this statement and to really undergird this idea of the resurrection Here, now Peter moves, and he quotes from someone who is well-loved, well-respected. He quotes from David himself. This quote comes out of Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and here's what it says, verse 25. Follow along with me. It says, for David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me me full of gladness with your presence. Peter wants to establish in the mind of his hearers That the resurrection is not some afterthought of God. It is something that even the Old Testament, something, now think about the context here. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews who have gathered to celebrate a common Jewish feast. These are people who would have known the Old Testament. They would have been soaked in the Old Testament. They would have loved the Old Testament. They would have studied the Old Testament. And we know this from the context that the majority of the people there are actually people who are interested in the word of God. They're asking the right question. They really want to know what's happening and and what God is doing in this context and through what they're seeing. They have just seen something spectacular. God has softened their hearts and so what Peter does is so important. He goes to the scriptures that they loved, that they honored, that they respected and he begins to unpack the scriptures. He begins to explain them and give them the meaning that they had missed before. So he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, where he states emphatically that David actually anticipated, he looked forward to, and he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, you can see the value in this context of appealing to David. David was one of the most respected figures in Jewish history. He was the king of kings. Every king after David was compared to David. Nobody compared to him in greatness. Now, at first glance, when you read these words of this psalm, and if you, if you were to read Psalm 16 just as you're reading through the psalms, it would appear that David is speaking only of himself and his own circumstances. Most of this psalm is in the first person. It seems like he's appealing to, uh, or he's speaking of himself. But as we'll see in a moment, the most important part clearly does not speak about David, and it cannot speak about David. Most of what David writes does apply directly or quite literally to him. The psalm speaks in this context of a godly man, David, who's in great distress. So much of David's life was spent on the run, was spent in hiding, was spent in fear for his life. So here he is, he writes this psalm in great distress, and in the face of his great distress, one of the things we see here is this, that he expresses incredible hope and trust in God. He uses some really profound words in verse 25, as he quotes the psalm, he says this, I saw the Lord always before me. In other words, David is acknowledging that that his hope is in the reality that God is always with him, that God will not leave him or forsake him. He looks at his circumstances and he recognizes that even, even in the chaos of the circumstances, that God has not left him to himself, that God has not left him by himself. And he says this, he says, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken 
To be at the right hand was to be in the position of protection. The right hand in the ancient world symbolized protection. Think of a wedding. The husband stood, the groom stood at the right. It was symbolic of this idea that he would be the protector of his new bride, that he would be the one who would care for her, who would provide for her. In the ancient world, a bodyguard who was hired would always stand at the right-hand side. It was the position of protection. It was the position of protection because it gave somebody great confidence. And David is expressing here this confidence, believing, listen, that his hope will not be shaken because God would be faithful to him, that God would not leave him or forsake him. See, why, why could David have such incredible confidence in the Lord? Well, because God had made a promise to him. Drop down to verse 29. Peter wants to explain this psalm, and particularly one portion of the psalm. And here's what he says. He says, brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But take note of this, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Here's the key. David's hope was unshaken because he believed that God would be faithful to the promise that God had made him. This is referring back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is a pivotal moment in redemptive history, where God shows up and he speaks to David and he makes a covenant with him. It's referred to as the Davidic covenant. And in this covenant, God says to David, David, I will make your kingdom great. I will make your house great. And through your line, one of your descendants will sit upon your throne. He will rule and reign upon your throne forever and ever and ever. Now, God made this promise to David. And put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. When he writes this psalm, he is looking at his life and he is fearing for his life and there's the potential to believe that God won't be faithful. Maybe God won't give him a son. Maybe God will, will wipe out his line, right? We know what they did with a king once they killed a king? They killed his entire family usually. Well, as he looks at his circumstances, one of the things that anchors his hope is in the promise that God made. Now, we all know this, right? Promises are meant to be binding. Um, I mean, just, just, tell, just tell your kids that you promised them something, and you'll find out very quickly how binding that really is, right? I tell my kids all the time. I, I make promises to them, and it's so amazing. I find this incredible. Kids never forget a promise you make to them. Am I right, parents? Right? So you be careful when you use those words. Right? My kids will come home and, and they'll say something. They, sometimes they, they just think prom saying that you promise is the way to get whatever they want. So they'll walk on the door. Dad, remember you promised? Like they're hoping I forgot or that I, you know, I, I really said something that I didn't. You promised you'd give me candy? Yeah, right. But my kids will walk out the door in the morning and they'll be excited about, you know, the, can we go to the park right now, Dad? No, we can't go to the park. It's dark out. We got to go to school. When you get home from school, maybe we'll go, to the, we'll go to the park. Okay, Dad, you want to make me do? You promised, Dad? The first thing they say when they walk in the door, Dad, you promised we go to the park. <laughs> yep, let's go. Now, here's what we know. Look, a promise is only as good as the one who made it, Right? I mean, you just try that with your kids. Break your promise to your kids, right, more than one time, and really quickly, they begin to see right through you. They begin to question the validity of your promise. They begin to think, well, promise doesn't really matter. If you're inclined to make promises and break them, your integrity or lack thereof decreases the amount of hope that you might give that person to whom you made your promise. And this is so critical because David knows the character of the one who made the promise. That's why in the face of these circumstances, he can have unbelievable hope. He knows that this is the God who is perfect. He knows that this is the God who is all-powerful. He knows that this is the God who is sovereign over all of creation. He spoke it into existence. He knows that this is the God who is holy, who is perfect, who is pure. He knows that because of all those things, that this God can never, ever, ever lie. When he makes a promise, he will always be faithful to fulfill that promise. He knows his God will always come through. 
And friends, that's the encouraging thing for you and I. The scriptures are filled with so many promises for us in Jesus Christ. Some of them are presently being fulfilled. Some of them will be fulfilled. Our hope is this. The God who promised will always be faithful. He will not let us down. Amen? His hope is that death will not be the end. Look at verse 26. He knows even, even if he does die that God will be faithful, that he has to be faithful. He says, therefore, as a result, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh, this is, this is key, will also dwell in hope. David here is expressing the idea of resurrection, not only of the Messiah, but of a future resurrection for himself. He believes that even if his life is taken out now, there is a day coming where he will live again. And so he says, I trust God. I have no fear. I can even stare death in the face. I can encounter the most gravest of circumstances, and my hope cannot be shaken. Look, whatever life throws at you, no matter how hard it gets, there is hope. One of the things, I just, I think of the situation that this, you know, the pastor and his wife and their family must be going through right now, how easily their hope might be shaken. Hope is the very thing that gives us reason to keep going. Hope is the very reason that we are able to press on. And there's one thing that I've, I've learned in this life, and it's this, that so often life goes in unexpected ways. Many of you in this room are experiencing great upheaval in your life. You're experiencing chaos. You're experiencing great pain, or you have. And, and if you haven't yet, you will. And one of the things I've learned to not do with people is to come alongside them in the midst of their pain and try and explain that you know, everything is okay and here's why this is happening. Because the reality, isn't this, the reality is we just don't know sometimes. Isn't that true? But you want to know what we always know? We know the one who's in control. And we know the character of this God. We know that he's faithful. We know that he's true. We know that he can be trusted. We know that he has a purpose and he has a plan. Even if we don't, we know this God. We know he loves us. We know he's merciful and gracious. And we know that if we turn to him, that we can find everything we need. Amen? The resurrection of Jesus Christ provides this hope. The resurrection says that the greatest enemy we face, the greatest danger we face, the greatest chaos we face is death, and that has been defeated. So there is nothing else in our life with which we cannot trust God and for whom we cannot turn to hope in. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You will not be given over to full and final defeat in this life, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how painful it is. Your heart can be glad, your tongue can rejoice because your God is faithful. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now here's where the psalm takes a, a prophetic turn. David moves from speaking mainly of himself and his own circumstances to speaking about somebody else. And essentially, he says that the resurrection declares that Jesus is the giver of life. Verse 27, he picks back up. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter, he, he jumps all over this in explaining this in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he says, look, this can't be speaking of David. Now, in the context and in that culture, a lot of the Jews would have been inclined to see this as some kind of a, a spiritual meeting, maybe a, a metaphorical approach to the scriptures. They thought it was talking about David, right? It reads as if it's talking about David. But he shifts here, he's been talking in the first person, and for the first time he turns and says this, and halfway through verse 27 he says, you will not let your, let your Holy One see corruption. The phrase Holy One 
is one that we see as a general title in Scripture. It refers to those who have been blessed by God, those who are righteous, those who are in covenant relationship with God. But more specifically, time and time again, what we see in Scripture is that the Holy One is a title for the coming Messiah. And essentially, Peter says, this is the very reason for hope. He makes it abundantly clear that David could not have been talking about himself. He says, look, we all know, and they knew at this time, David's tomb is right around the corner. Okay, we can all go, we could, if we wanted, we could excavate the tomb, we could dig up his bones, we would see that his body was not only laid to rest, but it decayed like every other human being who has ever existed. And again, he, he connects this thought of the resurrection to the promise that God had made to him. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, they were all trying to figure out who this Messiah would be. When would this king come? Who would be the one who would reign over Israel? And in every succeeding generation, here's what they knew, that the king would come and he would die, and then another king would replace him, and then another king would die and replace him, and it was just on and on with the cycle. But at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, they hadn't had a king for some time, not since the Babylonian exile. So everybody is awaiting this future coming king. There's excitement, there's anticipation, and they're all wondering who is going to fill this role. David knew something that they never picked up on. Somewhere down along the line, most of them began to believe that this just meant that the line of David would be perpetuated through succeeding kings. But David understood something very different. He looked at the promise of God and he believed that it meant that one must actually come, put death to death. Someone would have to die, but he would conquer death. He would be the one who would rise from the grave. He would sit on the throne and he after that would never die. And all these things, Peter declares, point to one individual, and his name is this Jesus of Nazareth. David sees the Messiah as the one who will ultimately grant life. And again, David makes this connection, I believe in verse 28, with the reality that not only is this one going to reign forever, but he will bring to life all those who know and love him. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. It seems as though David is making a statement about his future life with God in this verse. And it's all because of the resurrection. That there is a day coming when he will rise from the grave too. That he will follow the paths of life that have been established by the resurrected Christ. That he will dwell in gladness because he will dwell forever in the presence of his God. Now as we just consider the resurrection and all that it means, one of the things I think we do often is, is we look forward to the future resurrection. And by the way, the Bible affirms that. We need to have the hope of a future bodily resurrection. That's coming one day. But the scriptures repeatedly make connections to a current resurrection that's happened, a spiritual resurrection. If we're in Christ we don't just await a future resurrection, we have a spiritual resurrection that has radically altered our very being. Our very identity has been shifted. A new power has engaged with our hearts. Paul speaks of this, you can flip forward, keep your finger in Acts chapter two and flip to Romans chapter six. And this chapter is filled with implications of the resurrection. But beginning in verse four, Paul writes these words. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. He's speaking spiritually here. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the present reality of all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The spirit of God has been poured out upon us and we have been given newness of life. This is life where the shackles of sin have been shattered where we no longer have to walk in slavery to sin, where we can enjoy the presence of God here and now as he pours it out without measure in our hearts. 
Paul says, just flip forward to Romans chapter 8. Verse 11, he says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I just think this is so critical for us to grasp that we have the presence of God within us and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead actually gives life to us here and now. Our problem so often in the Christian life is, is we walk around as if we're a dead man still. You know, we wander back to the grave. We put on the grave clothes. We, we begin to engage and dabble in and pursue the sins that once characterized our old man. The stuff that we have been set free from can so easily become the very things that become characteristic of our life again. And so many of us get so discouraged and defeated because sin just feels like it's way too strong, like its grip is too powerful. But the truth of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection is this. There is nothing that is more powerful than the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. There is no sin in your life that cannot be conquered. There is nothing in your life that cannot be gained victory over because of the resurrection power that dwells within you. Isn't that awesome news? We just need to tap into that power. We need to live in that power here and now. We need to pursue him and allow the spirit of God to reign and rule in our hearts through prayer, through the spiritual disciplines of soaking in his word, through fellowship with the saints. The good news is is that we experience his life here and now, but we experience it when we die in this mortal body, right? Paul says this, to live is what? Christ. But to die is gain. Don't you love that? See, most of the world walks around and and thinks that death is the end, and and when they get to the end of their life, such fear cripples their life, not for everybody, but for most people. Paul says this, great, take my life, because death is the doorway to the presence of God. Death is the doorway to greater joy and greater gladness, and so I don't fear death. I look at death, and I say, bring it on. I'm not encouraging you to pursue death, and I'm not saying that the process of death is any fun. Listen, but what awaits us is glory. What awaits us is so far beyond what we can imagine. You see, every one of us faces the certainty of death. But in Christ, we can face death with the certainty of life. Jesus is the defeater of death. He is the provider of hope. hope. He is the giver of life. And the resurrection declares all of this. And he sums it up in verse 32, back in chapter Acts, Acts chapter 2 now. And he says, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. In Peter's mind, there is no shadow of a doubt He confidently declares this truth because it is true and he has experienced it. He has witnessed it. And then he moves now from talking about the resurrection of Jesus to the exaltation of Jesus. The exaltation declares first that Jesus is equal to God in power. Remember, as we look at the the text here, one of the things that Peter is doing, he's making sure that that everybody knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-anticipated king that they have been waiting for, but he takes it a step further, and he wants them to know that this long-anticipated king is not simply some human king. He is actually God. He is the Lord God Almighty. And this was just revolutionary to them. They had no category for this. And so it's imperative that he begins to explain how this is possible. How can we declare that a man is God? And so what he does is he sets up this platform to say that that Jesus is on equal footing with God. And to say that somebody is equal with God means what? They are God. Let's read the passage in verse 33 and following. He says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Here we see 
Peter establishing Jesus' equality with God the Father as he talks about the exaltation. The exaltation, if you remember, is simply this. It's the point where Jesus was brought up to sit and remain at the right hand of the Father. Peter says he was exalted to the right hand. That is, by the way, in the ancient world, the right hand is always understood as a place of power. Especially in the ancient world, the right hand was often identified with greatness, with strength, and with goodness. And very often, it's actually reflecting divinity. But we see the sense of power, even, do you remember the disciples, uh, John and James, the two brothers who came to Jesus uh, that one day, and they said, Jesus, uh, when you reign in your kingdom, will you grant it to us, one of us to sit at your right hand, and one of us to sit at your left hand? Those were the two positions of power. Now, that was a, a bold move. The other gospel writers tell us, actually, they sent their mom to do it. Really good for them, huh? Really brave. You really deserve power after that move. But the essence of what they were asking for was this. Jesus, when you're, when you're in the position of power, when you're ruling and reigning, can we also share in your power with you? Can we be among those? You know, they've they've uh, segregated themselves from the other apostles. They don't want them to get there first. That's the issue. We want to have the kind of power that you have. Can we experience it? Can we share in it? To which Jesus replied, it is not for me to grant, but the Father. And in verse 33, Peter wants to make a direct link to what they're seeing happening in this moment. Remember, look at what it says, right? Remember what they've just experienced. That, that the Spirit has been poured out, and he says to them, you yourselves, you're seeing and hearing this. This is evidence, he says, of Jesus Christ being elevated to the right hand of the Father. He is now, in this moment, sharing in the very power of God. In an Old Testament context, to pour out the Spirit was seen as being only the, the uh, ability of God. It was the responsibility of God. And what we see here is this, that Peter is saying this, Jesus Christ is now sharing in what you have always understood to be the work of God. He is God. He is doing it himself. The power that's being poured out has been evidenced by all of them. They've all seen this display of power, and Peter's just telling them what it means. You know, the last days are defined by the Messiah and his power. We've talked a bit about the last days and what that looks like, and, and so we're seeing this all unfold. This is the era of the Messiah, and the power is being given to advance the mission of God, the power to give new life, the power to open blind eyes is finally here, the power to open deaf ears has been granted and this is none other than the very power of God flowing through the Messiah who mediates God's presence to God's people in this new community, the church of Jesus Christ. And we take for granted so often, I'm convinced, and I'm convicted by this, by the way, that we, just, we take for granted what we have been given in Jesus Christ. This past week was the uh, anniversary of... Um, or not anniversary, but the Back to the Future thing, you guys saw that, right? The, the second Back to the Future movie, uh, when they went into the future, they predicted they would be coming to 2015, you know that? Right, and, and right, look at all the hoverboards and uh, flying cars, right? It all happened just as they thought, and the Cubs won the World Series. Oh, wait. I just think of that for, for a second. I think of what it, would be, what it would be like to be given the opportunity to travel back in time. Imagine somebody handed you a DeLorean with a flux capacitor right now and said, go, go back in history, go to anywhere you wanted. Where would you go to? I think most of us would, would be like, oh, it wouldn't it be great to go back and like maybe meet Moses or Abraham, you know, find a biblical figure in the Old Testament and maybe experience some biblical events. I would have loved to see what it was like for God to show up on Mount Sinai. I would have loved to experience, right, maybe just seeing from, a, from afar or maybe on the ark, the flood. You know what's really interesting? When, when you think of, what David might do if he was given a DeLorean with a flux capacitor, you want to know where he would travel to? Now, D David longed for what we're experiencing right now. 
Every person before the cross longed. Now, to be fair, he probably would have chosen to go right to the point where Jesus Christ was transitioning into the new covenant, right? Where his spirit, like, he would have loved to see Jesus. He wanted to see the Messiah. But just get this sense. He longed for what we have. The Spirit was poured out temporarily upon certain people. He was there, then he was gone, and it was selective. But now what we see is the Spirit is just being unleashed upon every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. There are no distinctions. Everybody has the same intimacy, access, power, and privilege. The communion and fellowship with God is something that had never before been experienced. David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you name it, they all longed for what we experience here and now. Just think about what that means for us. How often we just take this for granted. You know, we, we walk around and we're like, yeah, my life's not really that great. You know, I wish I had more money or I wish I had more stuff and, you know, my life's really hard. You have the living God within you. Life can't be that bad. And yet, what distracts us is those things. And what God wants us to see is this. We live in a time of immense, immeasurable privilege. We live in a time that is absolutely new. Peter makes the startling claim that Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. One of the things they were witnessing that day was that the risen Jesus was placed in a position of equal power as the dispenser of the Spirit of God, sharing fully in his heavenly rule. But the argument doesn't end there. The exaltation also declares that Jesus is equal in authority. And so again, he highlights David and and promotes words of David to validate and prove his point. He says this in verse 34, For David uh, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. He quotes from Psalm 110. Again, remember, David is seen as the greatest king in Israel. He was loved, he was honored, he was revered, people respected him, but he was deeply, deeply flawed. David himself knew that somebody greater than David had to come and rescue David. And he knew that it had to do with the promise God had made him, and so he knew that one of his descendants would be the greater king than he was. Jesus referred to this verse. By the way, this verse, uh, Psalm 110, is quoted so often in the New Testament. It is a pivotal verse to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus refers to this verse in Matthew chapter 22. He was being confronted by the Pharisees. He was being challenged. They were trying to trap him with all kinds of difficult questions. And so they throw this verse at him. And asking how David could refer to a mere human descendant of his Lord, Jesus looks at them and gets, tries, turns the tables on them and says, you guys explain it. If the Messiah were to be a mere human descendant of David... A mere human being, this form of address is improper. He says, look, David would never call one of his descendants, someone of his line, his Lord. It's just improper, it's disrespectful, unless that person was truly greater than David. And there's only one person who could be greater than David. He could not be a mere man, he must be the God-man. He must be the one. He must be the one the Father would exalt above every being in heaven and on earth, giving his, him a name that is above every name and allowing him to sit at his right hand until he should make all his enemies subservient to him. He rules as God's vice regent, meaning he is given the full weight of authority. He rules on God's behalf. The Bible is adamant that Jesus Christ has the same authority as God. And one of the things that we know and we're studying as we look at this time frame that we're living in, you know, we're living in these last days, these days that have been inaugurated by the first coming of Jesus, but listen, they will be consummated by the second coming of Jesus. And at the second coming of Jesus, the one thing that will be put on full display is the authority of Jesus Christ. It will be undeniable that he is God, and that will be reflected in that he comes to judge the nations. 
The Jews believed they understood that only God could judge. Only God had the final say. Only God could determine somebody's eternity. And so here what we see is this. Jesus is put constantly in Scripture on the same playing field as God. He is equal in authority. In fact, one of the most powerful sections in all of Scripture that displays the authority of Jesus is Revelation 19. And you can just just listen to this as I read it. Listen to how it describes the authority of Jesus Christ. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Talk about an authoritative title. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the only one who is equal in authority with God because he is God. Lastly and quickly, he is equal in glory. The exaltation declares that Jesus is equal in glory to God. You have to kind of read between the lines to this. You have to almost put yourselves in the, the shoes of those who would have heard this. Here's what Peter declares, that Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God. Now, in the Jewish mind, listen, nobody could be in the presence of God and live. Nobody could be exposed to the full weight of God's glory and survive. It was utterly impossible because humanity was too sinful, too wicked, and God was too pure and too holy. And yet, what we see here is Jesus' declaration that Jesus is equal in glory with God the Father, the evidence of which is this. He right now is at the right hand of the Father, dwelling in his full presence, in his full weight of glory. I mean, Moses, the great prophet, was not even able to be exposed to the full weight of God's glory, right? He begged God, God, show me your glory. Let me see it. I want to be exposed to it. God said, no man can see my glory and live. And so he tucks him into the cleft of a rock, into a cave, and he has to cover his hand. And he, and he goes by and he allows Moses to catch a glimpse of his afterglow, the afterglory of God. And that in and of itself is so magnificent, it's so wonderful that Moses' face begins to radiate the glory of God. Moses walks back into the camp with the people and people are trembling and terrified because they are seeing reflected on Moses' face from that little glimpse, the glory of God, and they cannot bear to be in his presence either. But here is Jesus, now seated at the right hand of the Father, not only surviving but living in perfect unity. Jesus, in John chapter 17, right before his death, he prayed these words. He said, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here is Jesus dwelling in perfect glory with the Father as he always had in eternity past. Peter is putting this magnificent case together and he's presenting it. He's, he's showing them, do you see the evidence of who Jesus is? This is evidence, by the way, that demands a verdict and that is where he's leading this whole thing to. And so to drive this nail home, look at what he says in verse 36. He says, let therefore all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The entire objective of Peter is seen right here. He wants to make sure it's seen and known and understood. It is indisputable. It is utter reality that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And beyond that, by the way, this word Lord is placed First in the sentence, in the Greek language, this, here's what this means. It means the great weight of emphasis that Peter is trying to make is the word Lord. 
He's saying, this Jesus, he is the Lord. He is God Almighty. This Jesus whom you crucified. And here we see him do exactly what he did earlier. He establishes this chasm that is so wide. You killed him. But God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let me just ask you one question this morning. And there's nothing that matters more than this. Do you know for certain? There is a massive chasm between what we did and what God did. We stand positionally with all of those who nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, all those who yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Our sin held him there. We would have chosen no different than they did. Our sin put Jesus to death. It has alienated us from God. It has driven a wedge between fellowship with him, and yet the very reason we were created was to know him, to love him, and to live with him. If you don't know for certain, the Bible wants to make it very clear that you can. You say, what do I do? Well, that's next week. D.L. Moody once preached a sermon in Chicago, um, and he closed the sermon, and, and he, he didn't preach the response to the gospel message. In that same week, the Chicago fires swept through Chicago, killing hundreds, killing thousands of people. And he wept. He wept bitterly over the reality that the people who sat and heard his sermon were never told, because he thought he had one more week with them, were never told how they ought to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, how that they could be certain that they could have life in Jesus Christ. And so he determined from that moment on to never preach a sermon about Jesus Christ, to never preach a sermon without telling people how they could respond to him. And so I'm gonna do you the same justice. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know for certain, if you don't have the hope of eternal life, listen, you can. You can turn, you can look at the cross, you can see that it was your sin that held him there. You can confess that your sin put Jesus on the cross. You can repent of your sin. You can believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ died for you in your place, that he bore the whole weight of God's wrath. You can believe right now and you can be certain that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that God declared that it is finished, that your sin has been paid in full. You can look to the cross right now and find meaning and hope and life. You can have certainty of all that God promises you in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I know for certain. Well, then let me give you three things as we close our time together. Three things in response, if I know for certain, first I must trust God. No more being ruled by fear, no more being ruled by anxiety and worry. We must trust God. We must learn to give up control. We must learn to live under the control of our God. We must find peace and rest and comfort and hope and life in Him. We must believe what we say we believe. Secondly, if I know for certain, I must surrender to God. This passage is unequivocal. He is Lord. You don't make him Lord. God made him Lord. He is Lord. You acknowledge him as Lord and you surrender to him as Lord. You say, well, I already surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Yes, but listen, like me, you have the tendency in your life to hold back things from God's lordship. You have the tendency to run back to your sin and to say, no, no thanks God, you can have parts of me, but this part here I'm saving. I love this part, I will not give it over to you. My, my anger, my lust, my desires, my materialism, whatever it is. God says, no, if you surrender to me, you surrender everything to me. And so I just wanna give you freedom in this moment, listen, to examine your heart, to ask God, God, show me what there is in my life that is not fully surrendered to you or that I need to re-surrender to you so that you can have all of me, so that I can find the fullness of joy in your presence and so that I can be useful in your hands. 
Just take a moment and you just confess it to the Lord and you say, God, help me. God, change me. God, grow me. And it's through that repentance that you will find progress and growth and victory. And some of you, you're drowning in your sin because you stubbornly will not surrender your heart completely to God. And God promises, listen, if you do, I will be faithful. I will provide. I will bless. I will change you. You can't do it on your own, but I can. That's what he promises you, and that is good news. Amen? And if I know for certain, lastly, here's where we all must land. I must praise him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is the one who defeated death. He is the one who provides us hope. He is the one who gives us life. He is the one who rules and reigns. Right now, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning with the Father. He is worthy, listen, of our greatest praise, our greatest passion, our greatest adoration, our greatest awe, and our greatest wonder. And I'm, I just, my heart is so broken that so often, myself included, do not give him all that he deserves in passionate praise. And we have an opportunity right now to respond in praise through worship. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up. Church, I want to encourage you. We have a God who's worthy of our praise, amen? We have a God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Our supreme objective, if we know these things, if we are certain of all that he is, is to behold our great God for all that he is. Father, I pray that now in this moment you would stir our hearts' affections. God, that you would work mightily in our midst, that you would open eyes, that you would... Lord, convict hearts, Lord, that you would be blessed and pleased to receive, Lord, praises that flow out of hearts of gratitude, hearts that have been gripped by your grace and gripped by your greatness. Lord, we pray that in this moment, Jesus Christ would be our all in all. There would be nothing else we desire but him. Help us, we pray, O Lord, receive all of the praise from our hearts and from our lips. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.